faith solely in the saving through this book and have come to this great chapter and these verses of encouragement before us. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. Let us just soak in this text for a moment, then we'll look to the Lord in prayer and journey on from there. Galatians chapter 4. Continuing in his argument through this book, he says, I mean that, or I illustrate that, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's come before the Lord, asking His help, seeking His teaching and instruction from the Word today. We continue, our Father, in prayer. We come before you as we have sung as Abba, Father. And our spirits cry out to You, longing to draw close, longing to know You, longing to be faithful to Your call upon our lives as Your people. For those who cannot cry, Abba, Father, with any joy or strength or any assurance that they belong to You, I pray that You would bring the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ to their understanding. And that through this text of Scripture today, we as your followers would come to know you better and rejoice in what we have in Christ. We praise you for the gathered church, for your goodness and faithfulness to us as a people. And we ask, Father, that here in this place, the Spirit of God may change us and grow us and feed us upon your truth. We will praise you for all that you're pleased to do through Christ. Amen. I found it mildly irritating as a dad to encounter different admission costs for children and adults. You've probably been in that spot somewhere along the line. It might be getting into a museum or into a high school ball game or something of the like, maybe a night in a motel. I love paying less money for the kids, don't get me wrong. The problem was the age at which adult prices applied. $5 for kids... $11 for adults. Well, let's see, we we have an 11-year-old. This one just turned 10. The other two are younger, and that's right when they inform you that adult starts at age 10. So you seeing this kid bouncing off the wall over here making alien noises, that's your adult? (laughs) That I'll pay adult prices to get him in. 
For many good reasons, governments differentiate, don't they, between minors and those who have reached the age of majority or adulthood. We don't permit 10-year-olds to vote. We don't allow 14-year-olds to drive cars, and 17-year-olds generally are not permitted to rent their own apartment. Until that child reaches the age of majority and can legally claim an inheritance, we don't give an inheritance to a, young, to a minor either. If there's an inheritance that has been gained, there is money put in a trust, and there are managers who watch over that money. But there is not freedom for that minor to just take that inheritance and spend it however he or she chooses. But ideally, a child's passage from the status of minor to adult is more than simply a legal change. A shift of direct responsibility from parents to the church or to the state. Hopefully, a child's passage into adulthood involves a maturation and heightened intimacy of relationship with his or her parents. There is the desire of godly parents to raise their children for this day. They raise them toward release, but they raise them toward adulthood, right? And we, we rejoice in this opportunity. We feed and house and clothe them. We teach and enforce rules and establish expectations. We contribute willingly and persistently to their development. But we recognize that this arrangement is temporary. We're working them toward adulthood, leading them in that direction. We calibrate what we do to encourage a parent-child relationship that is characterized by mature fellowship. As we return to our series here in Galatians, such family dynamics are used to illustrate the nature of our relationship as God's people to the Lord. There are two themes that we find unfolding in a sense simultaneously here in verses 1-7. through The first is that broader theme of our status as God's people on the timeline of salvation history. The second is the narrower theme of one's individual participation in the implications of the revelation that we receive here. So we, we want to look in something of this global sense, think globally about our standing in salvation history history as God's people. We've been doing that, that week in and week out here through the series in Galatians. But also look individually to the glorious implications of this revelation in our walk with God as individual believers. Both are playing out in these verses before us today. We continue to remember and consider the time relationship here in God's salvation purposes. So teachers, false teachers, are pressing the Gentile Christians in Galatia to submit to the requirements of the Mosaic law as a means by which to qualify as the people of God. Paul stresses that God's people have always been saved from sin by faith in God's promises. So in chapter 3 and verse 6, we, he stresses Abraham was counted righteous through his faith in God's promise. 
Not through obedience to the law, not through circumcision, but through his faith in Christ. Ultimately, that is the promise that he was receiving, though not fully aware of where this was pointing, where this was leading. The promise to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, as we have seen in this book of Galatians, that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This means then, as you see on this graphic, the arrow leading directly from the promise of Abraham to Jesus Christ in the new covenant, this means then that the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai was in some sense temporary in its function. Now that the new age of the Spirit had dawned with the coming of the promised Messiah, a return to the Mosaic law a return to that law to qualify ourselves as God's people is very misguided. The old covenant has been replaced in God's plan by a new covenant. If you do that, if you go back to submission to this old covenant, you're really missing the entire point, Paul is arguing. But you will, by default, by relying on the law in a way it was never designed to function, you will actually be seeking to please God by works. This is what he has been stressing throughout the book. Remember back in chapter 2 and verse 16, a very significant and theme verse we read week in and week out, but remember the point. Know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. In Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Just read Galatians 2.16 over this graphic. This is what he is saying, that it is no longer conceivable to bring yourself under this law, and never are we justified by works of the law in the first place. And so chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? Notice that emphasis here in 3, 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? How foolish that would be. Verse 23 of chapter 3, he goes on to work out this, what we see before us here and this distinction in time. Now, now before faith came, remember what that meant as we looked at that last week, before faith in Jesus Christ as crucified and risen Savior, before that came on the line of salvation history. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law was going to save no one in and of itself. So, verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This would be the end, that we be justified by faith in promise, as it has always been, but the law served as a guardian, showing us our sin. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, now that faith in Christ, now that the Messiah has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of 
of God through faith. No longer under a guardian, that's the idea of the sons of God, having come to maturity in Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or fe- and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Not destroying those distinctions as if they don't exist in any sense physically, but saying that in status before God we are one in Christ. There's not Jew and Gentile. There's not those Jews who have received circumcision who are participating in the Old Covenant and then these Gentile believers who really don't have the status that these Jewish believers have. It's not that. Verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, what Paul does in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4 is he elaborates and clarifies this point. As he does, the personal implications of our position as Gentiles on the timeline of salvation history begins to emerge, the personal implications. We've not seen a lot of that yet to this point in the book, but like sun poking through the clouds, we encounter in this text heartwarming reality of our status in union with Christ. We've been singing of it here. It's been sweet this morning to think of these truths and how they affect us as followers of Christ. But Paul, first of all then, in the first two verses, illustrates the temporary and limited function of the law in salvation history. I mean that the heir, and I think we could say, we read him rightly to say, I am going to illustrate. Now, this is what I mean. The heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. The heir, heir is a person who is chosen to inherit someone else's wealth. The illustration casts light on heirs in chapter 3, verse 29, obviously, of Gentile believers who have trusted God's promise to Abraham by trusting Christ as their Savior. Back to this illustration then. The child, don't read there simply as one who's immature, but read there, probably could put the word minor in there. The heir, as long as he is a minor, is no different from a slave although this minor child is the owner of everything, the inheritor of the whole estate. No different than a slave. What does that mean? In what sense? In the sense of status. A slave cannot lay claim to the master's wealth, and the son, although the heir, cannot lay claim to his father's wealth just yet. They're the same in status. Your neighbor can co- cannot come over to your house, enter into your garage, and take your car. That's just they're not welcome to do that. But if you have a 14-year-old daughter, she can't do that either. You might have even bequeathed the car to her, but she can't take it and go with it. Right now, as far as that car is concerned, they're pretty much the same. That's what he's saying. Even though this son, and remember inheritance uh, rules in that time, all inheritors would be sons. The son is the owner of everything. The son is the legal heir of his father's estate, but while he's a minor, he has no right to his father's wealth. It's been willed to him. He owns it all, but, verse 2, 
He is under guardians and managers until the date set by His Father. I take these terms to be essentially interchangeable and to be used simply for illustrative purposes. I don't think there's any value in going deep into these two words and trying to understand the difference between them. Paul is simply illustrating what? That the era of Mosaic law was a season of guardianship for a minor by way of illustration. So again, looking at this chart, there is the promise of Abraham that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but there was the law given by God to Israel. It functioned in a very significant way. It was important. But this Mosaic law was a season of guardianship. It was the time of minority for the son, not yet of majority or of adulthood. Remember last week, the young, if you were here, the young unmarried couple who had the hovering guardians watching over them, making sure that they were faithful to one another and to their parents before they came to marriage, and, and, and watching and hovering, and then what happens on the day of the wedding? They're gone. And what happens on the day that the son inherits? That one is gone. These guardians and managers are only useful as long as the son is still a minor. But the father has set a day on which the guardian's job then will end and the son will become the master of his father's estate. Paul now applies this illustration to Gentile Christians. We're looking more globally here in these next verses at salvation history. In the same way, verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When we were children, if you follow his argument, he's speaking here obviously figuratively, not when we were little kids, physically, but when we were children, in this analogy, a reference to the era of salvation history when God's people were under the Mosaic law, when we were in that guardianship position, Paul pictures this era as a time under that guardianship in chapter 3 and verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Until, so going back to verse 3, in the same way when we were children, when we were under guardianship, when we were under the law, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The meaning of this phrase is widely debated. A lot of ink has been spilled. I'm not going to take time to work through the options here today. But suffice it to say, Paul refers to the days before the Galatians trusted the gospel. And as is characteristic in this book, Paul does not work overly hard to distinguish between Jews and Gentiles under the law. The Gentiles have the law written on their heart, and they break it. The Jews have the Mosaic law given to them, and they break it. And so in that sense, however we proceed, and he works this out quite a bit more in the early chapters of the book of Romans, however we proceed, all are condemned by God. All have sinned and fall short of the righteousness of God. But picturing that here, he describes it as being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
Before coming the coming of Christ, the Galatians were enslaved to the world's way of seeing things, to the world's way of doing things. Whatever these principles are, in verses 8 and 9, it may link these principles to demonic powers which influence people to sin. But Paul indicates that a return to circumcision, to food laws, to holy days and the like, would be to subject oneself to the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you can go the Gentile route and the elementary principles of this world may simply be living according to the flesh and its dictates. You can go the Mosaic Law route and it can be God's Word has spoken and I find within myself no capacity to obey that law. However you cut it, whatever these principles are, we live according to the flesh. So there is utterly no good reason to return to the works of the law which liberated no one from sin before and is not going to do so now. In bondage to the law of God, they could never fully obey God rescued them, verse 4. God rescued us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. That is, at the ideal season in salvation history, God sent His eternal Son on a mission to save His people from their sins. As we view this chart again, we say God sure takes His time. That was a long, long period of time, but God knew in the process of time that this was ideal. And why, we cannot fully understand. I don't know that it's really worth our time to lay out all the reasons that this is why it was the fullness of time. It just was. In God's sovereign purposes, He knew. And he sent his son in that fullness of time. For centuries, God had prepared his people for the coming of Messiah through prophecy. And for centuries, people living under the Mosaic law realized that we sin. When God says to do it, we don't. And when he says not to, we want to and do. But in that fullness of time, the eternal son took on flesh, which is emphasized here in verse 4 by the phrases born of a woman and born under the law. Born of a woman by virgin birth in full humanity and under the law, God sent His Son as a subject of the law of Moses for what reason? To redeem those who were under the law. Jesus invaded the marketplace of sin in order to purchase His people with His own blood. To redeem. It's a beautiful word. A word we've sung about this morning and considered together. To redeem. That is, Jesus' death as the Lamb of God paid the full penalty of sin for those who trust in Him for salvation. And the key then, again, through the redemption, through, the, through trusting in that redemption, the key is to rest in what Jesus did. Not in your performance. Not in what you can do to qualify yourself to please God, but what in Christ has accomplished. He has paid the redemption price. He has purchased you out of the marketplace of sin. So I'm a slave in chains on a platform, and I am sold under sin. 
And one comes in and delivers me from my chains and pays the price and redeems me. And I say, wait a minute, I want to clean up here a little bit so that I can earn your deliverance. It's ridiculous. It's foolishness. What's the right response when one has come and broken your chains and bought you out of the marketplace of sin? The only proper response is worship, thanksgiving, joy, gladness, a sense that this is not what I deserve. Because in this marketplace, we were not taken against our will, we went willingly and subjected ourselves to sin and sold ourselves to it. But Christ redeemed us. He purchased us, as we read in 3.13, redeeming us from the curse of the law because it judged us for our sin. So the new era has passed as the temporary era of Mosaic law has passed. I said the new era has passed, that, that not really. <laughs> the new era has dawned and the old era has passed. So we come then on that macro scale looking at this large uh, picture, we have passed two new covenant era. And now on the micro scale, on the personal front, Paul picks up the implications of the middle of verse 5. So that, so he has redeemed us so that we might receive adoption as sons. That we might receive adoption as sons. The analogy is obvious. Son who has reached the age of majority has reached the time set by the father to inherit his estate. Again, in the ancient context, childless couples would often adopt a mature son, and that son would inherit all and become the manager of the estate, speak for the estate, and indeed own it. And so the idea here points us to the concepts of election and inheritance highlighted in verse 6. We've received the adoption of sons, verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul, I don't think, if you look at this carefully, because you are sons, do we read it this way? Because you have become sons, God therefore in response sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. No. Paul does not intend to establish an ordo salutis, a chronological order of salvation here. Paul typically views the conversion initiation complex as one singular complex of events. So I don't think it's right here to, to, to see that he's saying that, seeing it in that order. He's not saying we become sons of God first, then God sends the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower us. And there's, there are those who are believers in the gospel who think that's the way that it is. I, in fact, talked to somebody here very recently that is grappling with this idea that a genuine believer in Christ receives the Holy Spirit at a later time. Is that what he's teaching here? Not at all. Go back to chapter 3 and verse 2. I think we can even see it within the context here, though he doesn't say much of it uh, in this chapter. Chapter 3 and verse 2, let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The Spirit is connected directly to the hearing of faith, to the response to the gospel. That's how we receive the Holy Spirit. It's right there before us. 
They received the Spirit by faith when they trusted the gospel. They began in faith at conversion, of course, but they began in faith at conversion as ones who have received the Spirit. So as we come back to chapter 4 and verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, means that when I trust Christ as Savior, or it, it fits that idea, that when I trust Christ as Savior, I'm baptized by the Holy Spirit, I am cleansed from the guilt of sin, and the indwelling of the Spirit comes upon me. One of the effects, then, as I respond to the gospel and baptized by the Spirit, is that the Spirit takes up residence within, crying out, Abba, Father. We speak of this ministry as the internal witness of the Spirit. Now, what were the false teachers saying? How were they influencing the Galatians? The clearest evidence that you belong to God's people is that you have qualified yourself for that status by conforming to the stipulations of the Mosaic Law. We will know that you are God's people by observing the holy days of the Mosaic Law, by receiving circumcision, by following certain food restrictions. By these external efforts, you will qualify yourself and prove yourself to be the people of God. What does Paul say in response? The clearest evidence that you are God's people, that you are sons of Abraham, is that God's Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are God's child. It is by faith, it is by trust, it is by this ministry of the Spirit within. That is the evidence that I truly know the Lord. My spirit cries out, Abba. The Aramaic word for Father. The Greek word translated here into English, but pater. Abba, Aramaic, pater, Greek. Terms of endearment and intimacy. The Spirit's cry, the Spirit is crying, although the Spirit cries, of course, through our voice. Paul has no problem saying, the, saying it the other way in Romans 8.15. We cry, Abba, Father. And we do. We cry, Abba, Father, because the Spirit of God within us, indwelling us, cries out, God, my Father. Just a quick side note. There's all kinds of illustrations and stories and applications that have been drawn to Abba, Father, and what it means, and that it was a term for little children and the like. All of this, I think, has been proven to be too simplistic, and I don't think there's a lot of really value in us dicing up the words and how they were used. They're simply terms of endearment. They're terms of say, He is my Father. There's an intimacy here that is communicated by these words by this cry coming from within in his book knowing god j.i packer provides this valuable insight if you want to judge how well a person understands christianity find out how much he makes of the thought of being god's child and having god as his father if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. I just think as we're singing here this morning, 
singing Abba Father and singing these songs of confession and witness that God is our Father. Is your heart not filled with thanksgiving and with joy, with a recognition that this is indeed true and the Spirit of God is witnessing to our spirit as we sing these songs and as we pray together and as we consider God's Word together, there should be an internal witness that says, yes, He is my Father. And this is amazing grace. I won't rest on this long, but there has grown up a popular objection that the concept of Father is a source of pain to me, and so I struggle to appreciate God as my Father. Let me say with, with gracious gentleness but pointedness, your problem, if you're saying that, is not your earthly father. Your problem is a hard heart. Every father on this planet is a sinful misrepresentation of God as father to one degree or another. I'm not going to find any father who is the source of my appreciation of God as father in fullness and in completeness. It won't happen. It's not even logical. If you say this about your father, and not dismissing that fathers can be the source of tremendous pain, it's a whole different issue. We acknowledge that and we express compassion and we work through those things that are problems. It's got nothing to do with how you view God as your father. I just think logically speaking, that's not what you've done with teachers. I guarantee you, you've had a bad teacher. Unless you were homeschooled, <laughs> then we can't say that. But if you, if you were in school, it just dawned on me that that would be kind of bad. Uh, maybe you did. I, that's a possibility too, I guess. But I know there's some moms that are absolutely wonderful teachers. But you probably somewhere, you, maybe you went to college or somewhere community education or something, you had a bad teacher, right? Haven't we pretty much all had a bad teacher somewhere? Do I project that on the great teacher that I love? It never dawns on me to even think that way. I've had really bad teachers. I've had teachers, I just think, why did you even bother? You've done nothing but just discourage me, and I hate this topic because of you. Thank you. But I've had teachers. Some of them have spoken from this pulpit that I love. And I give thanks to God for it. And I say, those teachers have molded me and helped me and they have turned me on to the topic that they've taught. I don't ever confuse the two. You don't either. But somehow when it comes to my Father who has failed me and my Father God, I somehow make this connection. It's ridiculous. God is not a biological Father. It's an analogy. It's a, it's a figure of speech. But think about what it means. It could say God is my master and that'd be beautiful and right and good and in fact we speak that way. It's true. But it says He's my Father. It speaks... It speaks of fellowship. 
we sang these words. I don't know why they're affecting me this way, but they did. Just one phrase today, at thy table is our place. Did you know you sung that? Did you hear that? At thy table is our place. That's where we belong, at the Father's table. It speaks of fellowship. It speaks of wisdom. He is a source of instruction. It speaks of comfort and encouragement. It speaks of Him as the giver of every good gift. It speaks of righteousness being imputed to my account because of His work and grace. It speaks of inheritance. The inheritance of heaven. But let's get far more specific. The inheritance of God Himself. He is my Father I will inherit Him. I will inherit His riches for eternity. What immeasurable grace this inheritance, this inheritance, my place at the table as a wretched sinner. I don't deserve it. I can't buy it. And it's foolishness to think I can earn it by my good works. The chains have been broken. I have been redeemed. He has adopted me. I inherit Him forever. And it is all because of His grace. And so Paul concludes drawing it together. You see the word so there in verse 7. An inference from what proceeds. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That is, He is the source. God is the source. He is the author of our adoption and our status as heirs. You are no longer a slave, but now a son. There's an interesting thing that happens here that we can't catch in English, but the you here switches from all the plurals to singular. You. It's kind of, it, it, you don't expect that. But so you are no longer a slave. It gets very personal here. We've been looking at grand scale salvation history stuff and he turns it into you. We are no longer minors. I am no longer a minor. No longer enslaved to sin. We are now in Christ. God's sons and daughters. Heirs of God Himself. No longer under the guardianship of the law. We have been given. Through faith. Through faith alone in Christ alone. We have been given the status of the people of God. My place is at His table. Thomas Schreiner summarizes so ably. I'm not going to try to improve on it. Let me just read it to you. Believers are no longer minors. Living in the old age of redemptive history, slaves under the tyranny of sin, they have now reached full adulthood as God's sons. They have been redeemed from the law and have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Since you are sons, you are also heirs. The promises of Abraham are yours. I don't think that there is much use in trying to determine the cultural background from which Paul is drawing. I think there might even be some indicators that he's just 
making things up as he goes and begging and borrowing. He's just drawing an illustration. I don't think we need to try to figure out if this is Greek culture, Roman culture, Semitic culture, as he talks about adoption. Almost certainly not Semitic culture, as there's very little of that known in that culture and that world. But just to say that and qualify that, there is a beautiful picture from Roman culture. And that is when a son of age in that day, when a son came of age, there was a date set by the father when he would be seen as a man of adult standing and status. And he would inherit his father's estate. And there was a party that was thrown. It was called a liberalia. In the Semitic world, it's one of the most thrilling events, strangely, in going to, in visiting Israel, was to see a bar mitzvah, to see a son of the law, a 12-year-old young boy, shy, embarrassed by all the people looking at him, going right down the middle of the street with all kinds of tourists and all kinds of people around while there's a band playing and people dancing and singing and clapping and they got a little you know, thing over top of him like a, like a, a pavilion what, I can't think of the right word, but anyway, it's over his head and he's walking under it and everybody's celebrating uh, this son. And uh, one father just yelled out to the crowd with joy on his face. His son was now a son of the law and he cried out, he will be the next president of the United States. <laughs> Guy probably had a couple too many glasses of wine, I think, before that celebration. But, but just joy, just happiness. Son has come of age. Back to this Roman culture, in this liberalia, in this family festival that was experienced, there was a beautiful practice, and that was that you took off the robe of childhood and they put on to the son the robe of adulthood. And so perhaps even today with Jewish celebrations of just having this march, this celebration down the streets to announce and rejoice and celebrate. So in that celebration, this replacing of the robe of childhood for the robe of adulthood, whatever the ceremony, whatever different ways of celebrating that event, there is beauty in a coming of age. And in light of this passage of Scripture before us, we come to the question, have I come to be called a child of God? And how you answer that is really significant. Have you trusted God's way of becoming a son or a daughter of God? We can trust our own way. We can have our own ideas. We can inherit ideas from our parents and from our upbringing. This is how you become a part of God's people. But what has God provided? The picture before this celebration is of a slave in chains. And he comes in and severs the chains and liberates the slave and draws us out of our sin because of the penalty that he has paid and the deliverance that he has secured. Have you come to full faith and confidence in Jesus Christ paying the penalty of your sin in your place and redeeming you? This isn't what you do and who you are. It's about receiving the promise that He has given to save those who believe in what He has done. 
That is redemption. And that is the path of entering in. That's how I have a place at His table. I didn't earn it. I didn't buy it. I'm not better than my neighbors. I'm saved by grace alone, in Christ alone. If you've not trusted that message, you need to. It's not simply a matter of just learning the facts, but it's coming to believe those facts, to trust them, and to put your personal faith in this message of salvation. If you have embraced that message of Christ crucified and risen, and you know that you have been redeemed, and the Spirit of God witnesses with your spirit, I am a child of God, Abba, Father. And let us pause, and let us give thanks. Let's continue to rejoice and to grow in intimacy with God our Father, and to stop here and say, I am no orphan, I am no slave, I am the redeemed child of God. Lord, to speak these words is grace. To count them true is grace. To realize them is grace. How we rejoice to be able to say this with confidence and with thanksgiving because of who you are, what you have done through Christ, and where you are taking us. We are rich, and for this we pause here to rejoice and thank you. For those that know not Christ, will you please, by your mercy, draw them to a place where they see that Christ will liberate them from the slavery of sin, but only as they trust him. Bring us to that place, and may we rejoice that we no longer submit to the laws of the Mosaic Code. There is no more priesthood but Christ. There is no more sacrifice but Christ. There is no more righteousness that we could ever achieve. There is the righteous robe of Christ placed upon us. The robe of slavery, the robe of minority, is replaced with the robe of sonship. The righteousness of Christ given to us. In that, we rest and celebrate and give thanks in the name of our Savior. Amen. Please stand with me and for a few moments in silence, let's reflect on and